0: Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Rangina Hamidi, who until August 15th was the Acting Education Minister of Afghanistan, the first woman to hold the role in over 30 years. Rangina spent 14 months working to try and reform teacher training and modernize a department of 270,000 teachers and employees. She and her team also wrote the country's first national education policy based on Islamic foundations, Afghan values and international standards. Core to Rangina's work is access to education for women and girls, a mission that has very personal roots. Rangina's family fled Afghanistan during the Soviet Afghan war in 1988 when she was 11. They moved first to Pakistan and then to the US where she attended high school and went on to the University of Virginia where she double majored in gender studies and religious studies. She returned to Afghanistan when she was 26 and created a women-owned and women-run social enterprise. Her father, a former mayor of Kandahar province, was assassinated in 2011. I genuinely didn't want to leave Afghanistan because uh, from the beginning, since
1: when I returned in 2003, I've been fighting this internal fight both within myself but also within my Afghan community, whether it was Afghan community in Afghanistan or the Afghan diaspora growing up away from Afghanistan, I always used to argue with people saying, you know, it's easy to talk, it's easy to criticize from from afar, but the actual challenges to go in the system and try to bring change within the system. And that's what I was trying and attempting to do in the past 20 years of my life that I was on the ground. So I said, whatever changes are set to come, we will stand and go through that particularly knowing that I had served
0: in the government as a woman and I knew that things were probably not going to be easy. We cover a lot of topics here, including Rangina's decision to flee Afghanistan after the Taliban's takeover, despite having told the world she had planned to stay. We discussed her four and a half hour meeting with the Taliban and her purported ban on girls singing in public. Spoiler alert, she says she did nothing of the sort. We also talk about how she's grappling with the question of how to affect change from outside the system when she had so clearly decided that the best way to reform Afghanistan was internally, inside the country she loves, and where she had hoped to keep working, to retire, and to die. We speak to Rangina from Arizona, where she is now a professor of practice at the Thunderbird School of Management at Arizona State University. Rangina Hamidi, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Are you and your family safe, and how are you?
1: Yes, we are safe, and we're trying to define and give a new
0: meaning to our new life. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that feel like right now?
1: Almost 20 years of my adult life or my working life began and ended abruptly in Afghanistan. Everything that I set out to do, I met my husband there. We had our daughter Not in Afghanistan, but close to Afghanistan and all of her childhood was settled in Afghanistan. And we had a nice life going there. And so I would visit U.S., Europe and other countries uh, for vacation or for other purposes. But we, the three of us had decided that we were going to live in Afghanistan. My husband and I were set on growing old there, retiring there and then dying there. And unfortunately, on August 15, 2021, on my birthday, all the dreams that we had planned out together abruptly finished. And now we are, you know, halfway across the world trying to resettle into a life that we never planned for, a life that I'm not going to be ungrateful, but uh, it's not a life that I wanted in this age to start all over again. So that's what I mean by starting all over again.
0: Tell us if you would about your decision to leave. You fled Afghanistan when you were 11 and now you have an 11 year old daughter and you have decided to leave. Tell us about that.
1: My parents had made a decision to take us out, five girls out of Afghanistan in 1981. When I was about four, my first memories of life were as a refugee kid in Pakistan. In fact, in Quetta, Pakistan, where the hub of the Taliban at the moment is. And so my family decided to immigrate to America when I was about 11. So yes, I came as a refugee to America when I was about 11 years old. Since about May, uh, the security situation in Afghanistan up until August 15th, It was not looking great. We were constantly hearing on the news that various districts were falling to the hands of the Taliban. The government was losing more and more control. It was accepted by the government. The president would often give a security brief in all of the weekly cabinet meetings. So we knew the seriousness of what was happening, but there was constant reassurance that the government was doing its best to keep strategic locations in place so that we won't lose major cities. And unfortunately, things kept falling and falling and falling until August 15th, when the surprise took us all by witnessing the fall of Kabul. That evening, it was very, very hard, various emotions going through the head as to what exactly happened, why it happened. And a good part of me uh, was also in disbelief saying, this can't be true. This is a dream. This is a lie. The president hasn't left. The government hasn't fallen. And we're going to be back uh, to some level of normalcy, that this was some sort of a game to get some better result if I may call it that. But that very evening, we started receiving calls from family and friends all over the world and pushing us to leave. Um, and so my husband and I sat and we decided that, no, we were not going to leave. And I think I did an interview with BBC or NPR or some somebody even go the next day stating that, that I was not going to leave. And I genuinely didn't want to leave Afghanistan because uh, from the beginning, since when I returned in 2003, I've been fighting this internal fight, both within myself, but also within my Afghan community, whether it was Afghan community in Afghanistan or the Afghan diaspora, growing up away from Afghanistan, I always used to argue with people saying, you know, it's easy to talk, it's easy to criticize from from afar, but the actual challenges to go in the system and try to bring change within the system. And that's what I was trying and attempting to do in the past 20 years of my life that I was on the ground. So I said, whatever changes are set to come, we will stand and go through that. Particularly knowing that I had served in the government as a woman. And I knew that things were probably not going to be easy. But a couple of days later, as I was in this waiting period just to see how things would fall, I created a psychological imagery in my head, which was actually quite scary, where I imagined armed men forcing themselves into my house. And God forbid, snatching Zara, she's 11 and a half. And so them snatching Zara away from me, knowing that I have absolutely no other power or weapons or or resources at home to fight them off. And in my head, I thought that if that scenario ever took place, I would rather kill Zara myself and then kill myself after it than to hand her over to people with guns. And that imagery not only scared me, but it started making me feel as a different human being. I I had, I had never been in this situation. I had never thought these thoughts before. And our daughter is the most precious gift that we've been blessed with. And to think that, I had to think such horrible thoughts for her future or for her immediate future. And the horrible, ugly thought of choosing killing her over any other outcome just arose the mother in me. And I said, I cannot be selfish and I cannot let this happen to her. So, yes, I do consider this a selfish decision to leave Afghanistan. But I think as a mother, hopefully my Afghan kids, my Afghan countrymen and women would understand my decision that I could not take this risk for my daughter, as selfish as it may sound. I had to take her to protection and that's how, and when I decided that I could not remain in Afghanistan in this time of unknown. And when I did decide to leave Afghanistan, I left everything behind. We just left with one pair of clothes on our back and that's it. So our home is still there. It's still occupied by, you know, friends who are looking after it. And I hope that one day when it is possible to go back, I will go back. But that was the main reason why I left It's because of my daughter.
0: Sounds like a terrible decision to have to make. Before you left, you had a four and a half hour meeting with the Taliban, a meeting that was not well received by some. Tell us your thinking about having that meeting and your decision to go and have that meeting.
1: Yes, when I was called the evening before, the time frame is a dream to me right now. I I still have a hard time making myself adjusted to actual timing, having gone through what we did. But I hadn't decided to leave yet. And we were still in Kabul. um, And it was early evening, probably about 8 p.m.-ish, when I received a call from the sources on the ground that identified themselves as the Taliban, requesting a meeting of myself, my deputies and the directors of the ministry with a few of the commissioners who were there on the ground. I was actually surprised and struck by that request and immediately did not know how to respond. But my husband was sitting next to me and I, you know, gestured to him because when I when they introduced themselves as, as members of the Taliban, I put the phone on the speaker so he could hear what they were saying. And When I gestured to him, he nodded his head to me saying, accept it. So I said, okay, sure, I will come. Um, And they asked me to inform all my staff to make sure that they'll be there on time the next day. And when I put the phone down, I was struck as to what exactly I had just done. And I asked my husband, I said, why did you encourage me to agree to this? And he said, because you are a strong woman and by rejecting to meet with them, you would actually display your fear and why should you be afraid why should you not go see them they're not going to kill you on the spot they're not going to hurt you it was too early in the game that they could not do that and he said if you accept the meeting you also can go and learn what they want what are they going to ask you and just go because it does, it doesn't hurt to go and hear what the other group that the whole world was against, and the, you know Afghanistan is against. What, what what do they have to say? So, worst comes to worse, you just have a meeting with them and decide whatever you need to decide afterwards. You know, you're not going to pledge allegiance or anything. So that encouraged me actually, and to have that kind of support on the ground was very very important. Many people in Afghanistan or the world think otherwise, that just because, you know, you hear their name Taliban, all of a sudden it's these monsters and you can't dare talk to them or see them or sit with them and talk to them. Yes, we think differently, obviously, and we have different values and different systems. But at the end of the day, they're not monsters to eat you. And so... I accepted that invitation and organized with my colleagues, you know, sent a message in the WhatsApp group that we had to say that we have this meeting. And it was funny because in the morning when I woke up, several of my colleagues were not sure that I would actually show up. So they had called and left uh, private messages on my phone asking, are you sure you're coming? Are you sure you're going? Because it's unthinkable, you know, at a time when The the world media was displaying horrific pictures of women and children and families fleeing, particularly the pictures of the chaos in Kabul airport. One was just not ready to think of being in in a scenario where a woman of prominent position was sitting on the table next to the Taliban to talk. And so my colleagues similarly just were in disbelief that I had accepted this invitation. But I showed up and it was Very, very interesting encounter of four and a half hours. Initially, I did not expect, because of what the media has told us all throughout the past 25 years about the Taliban, I didn't expect them to be respectful to me or to acknowledge my presence. So I was surprised when I walked in, three out of the four men who were present stood up, greeted me, and actually had saved the seat that I would normally sit in as when I was minister to have my seat there. So that was a surprise, initial surprise. Then we greeted uh, each other and I thought I would be nervous, but luckily it was a very normal meeting. I think part of serving in big positions like the ministry helped me meet a variety of people from all over the country. And so I just treated them as just another group of people, men, with a different view, like I'd been encountering for the past 14 months in my my position as minister. And so I greeted them similarly. And then, you know, after that was done, we were waiting for all the other uh, staff to gather in a larger meeting room. And when they were ready, we all went. And the meeting took place, you know, generally, the Taliban talking about their policies and their knowledge of Islam and how and why they did what they did. And at the end, they they ended their meeting with saying and stating their policy of education to be based on three principles. And those three principles they described and stated as Islamic foundation, Afghan values and international standards. And as soon as they said that, I actually became very emotional because those were the three exact principles for my reform agenda that I had written and the beginning of taking the position 14 months before, prior to this. And when I became emotional, my deputy, my only deputy who had remained in the country out of four, he was sitting next to me and he realized why I became emotional. And then towards the end of the meeting, he asked me to speak a few words. And I, I responded to that. I, I expressed my emotion saying, you know, we were trying to bring the same reform agenda by recognizing that this is a predominantly Muslim country. And so we had to focus on the Islamic foundation to make sure that there was no difference between our modern education and the Islamic education, which unfortunately had been separated in the past 20 years. There was this You know, something that I highly criticized of the education ministry prior to me coming was the separation of the religious education with the modern education. And and unfortunately, that had created a big divide across the country. And then Afghan values was another of the pillars that I described as very important because the 20 years of education that I assessed uh, in my short period was that it was' a lot of the education material was not Afghan based, so we were teaching children in Afghanistan who we were not preparing within the framework of what it means to be an Afghan with an Afghan identity in the Afghan reality of what we had as a country, both historically and present-wise. And then finally, international standards in the sense of knowing that we're in the 21st century and we could not continue to live a couple centuries back. We had to catch up. We had to catch up with technology. We had to catch up with modern you know, education knowledge, uh, particularly in the sciences and mathematics and technology. And so I explained that that was our... Same exact mission as as you set out in your policy, and I said I hope that you're able to continue to make progress in this reform that we had started. But I stressed a bit more, um, and this I guess was my passion of take of going uh, to this meeting in the first place. Was I said I hope you will allow the millions of daughters of this country to not only start but continue and finish their education because I said I once upon a time was also a little daughter who was given the chance to edu- to become educated and I served this ministry as an educated Afghan girl. And they responded immediately back to that saying, of course, yes, we were not going to stop girls from going to school and and women from becoming educated.
0: Did you believe them when they said that? Were you thinking that they were credible? You sort of said that perhaps the media has presented them to be more of monsters than they were. So were you thinking at this moment, maybe I could work with them?
1: No, I could only hope that they would believe it. And I still, in the back of my mind, I still am praying hard and hoping hard that they will change their views on girls to go to school and allow women teachers to continue their working. Of course, we know still up to this point that they've not made that decision clear yet. Although there are reports now since yesterday that in some provinces, girls are allowed to go to school up to 12th grade, which is a good sign. But I hope that that can become a national policy and allow girls all over the country to go to school. I was not intending to work for them or with them. And that still is not my intention, even accepting the position with President Ashraf Ghani. When he offered me the position to come and work with his cabinet, I knew that there were a lot of problems in our government structure as a government. But because I believed in his vision and I respected him as an educated and a passionate Afghan man who wanted to develop Afghanistan, um, I accepted working with him for the sake of working, particularly for the education sector to bring about change uh, in the future. But so with the Taliban, it's a different story because I have a hard time believing a lot of the principles that they live by. Number one being the force of the gun and the force of just treating the world as black and white. You're either with us or against us. either believe what we believe or you are completely out of, of the frame. So I could never accept that mentality or that procedure of working with them, but if there is an opportunity to work with whatever system that exists on the ground that can utilize my experience and, and, and knowledge for the betterment of the future of girls and women and children in Afghanistan, I'm not quick to throw the opportunity out. But of course, as a human being as, and as an independent individual, I have the right to assess what is good and what is bad.
0: Did the Taliban ask you to swear allegiance to them? Well,
1: they didn't really directly say it, but then again, the Afghan society we use indirect form of communication in everything that we do. So yes, indirectly, they had hoped and they wanted me to support them, uh, particularly on international platforms, media platforms, to say that you know things are not bad, that things have calmed down, that there's no more fighting on the ground, that there's peace and stability. And I'm not denying that. Yes, there's no more fighting, but we're seeing reports all over the country that the physical fighting, the bomb blast, the suicide bomb blast have to a greater extent stopped, although there are the now the ISIS claimed attacks that we've witnessed since the beginning again. But at least the day to day fight of, quote unquote, Taliban versus government, that component has stopped. But in terms of playing or paying allegiance to the Taliban, Without knowing who their leadership is going to be, what their policies are going to be, what do they actually envision for Afghanistan and its future, with all my experience and my knowledge and my background of who I am and what I've stood for and what my family has stood for for all of our lives, it is not an easy decision to, to just pay allegiance based on the fact of remaining in Afghanistan and working in Afghanistan. There has to be some more and a deeper understanding of what exactly they're about to do and they want to do if I'm to make a decision about potentially working under that structure or not.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, they asked you one way or another, and you said you needed to learn a little bit more about what they stood for before you took a decision?
1: Absolutely. And I'll have to be frank and honest to the audience listening to this. There were opportunities for me to join the government of Afghanistan prior to President Ashraf Ghani. And I, I did not, specifically for obvious reasons that for me, where I did not feel comfortable that I, I, I didn't have a, a clear understanding of where Afghanistan was headed uh, with the leadership. The vision was not clear to me. But with Ashraf Ghani, speaking to him, reading his mind, reading his plans and strategies, things became very clear for me through the conversation with him, knowing that there were problems. I, I'm not saying that I blindly followed Ashraf Ani, but I at least understood where the leadership stood on its policies towards development of Afghanistan and that helped me make a decision. But right now, not knowing where we're headed and for how long and with what vision and mission No sound person can make a decision to join a regime like the Taliban on the ground.
0: There were some who seem to believe that this time might be different with the Taliban. And I hear what you're saying is what you wanted to go hear firsthand, what they had to say. But more recent news seems to kind of contradict that. We have the acting higher education minister saying that the qualifications earned in the past 20 years are, are of no use to the country. The education minister said no Ph.D. degree. Master's degree is valuable today. You see the mullahs and the Taliban who are in power. They have no Ph.D., no M.A., no high school degree, but they are the greatest of them all. I hear you almost wanting to be optimistic, but against that news, are you? I'm not optimistic for the way things are right
1: now as we speak. The members of the Taliban who we sat and talked with on that particular day, they were very clear saying to all of my directors saying, you know, we're not technical people in this industry or in in the field of education. Uh, kind of encouraging all of us to stay. We need you, we need your expertise, we need your knowledge. You guys are the experts of the know-how. We're just here to take the leadership and and make it an Islamic nation. So we would like you guys to all remain and help us. Now, as you rightfully said, over the short period of time, I have learned that they have not kept the majority of the staff that I had uh, in the leadership position. Most of the directors have been asked to come and support the person that they've assigned, but the person they've assigned, for example, to the procurement office. Procurement in any office or any industry is a very technical position. You can't just come out of religious education and learn the nitty-gritty procedures and principles of, of procurement. So there's a mullah in place to handle that directorate, but asking the previous directorate to come and just help. And the previous directorate is a young man that I know who has, I believe, a master's degree in a relative field of education, as well as over 10 years of working experience. And so you can imagine going to your job and not having any authority to make decision to Change decisions, or to convey the, the knowledge that you have uh, on the decisions that are being made, it, it, it's it's more than frustrating, and so they have not kept the word of saying they're going to utilize the technical expertise that is available on the ground, and the talk about PhDs and masters, I'll have to add a little funny. Think to this, because I myself did not have a master's degree when I was appointed as Minister of Education. And that was one of the biggest criticism of the community at large in Afghanistan, criticizing me that uh, an illiterate, they they translated not having a master's degree to illiteracy, uh, which is not fair either. And I actually had shared that concern with the president when he offered me the position. I was very blunt and I told him, I said, I don't even have a master's degree, let alone a PhD for a ministry position. Why are you asking me to do this? And he was actually quite blunt and educated about this. He said, you have more than 20 years of working experience in any educational institution across the world. Uh, Many institutions equate, you know, experience to higher degree as well. So first of all, theoretically, you might not have a master's degree, but you have more experience than a master's degree could provide, one. And number two, he said, I'm really looking for leadership qualities to lead an institution out of corruption and politics that the ministry was, prior to my coming. And he said, leaders don't necessarily need a PhD. He said, there's plenty of PhD holders and master's degree holders who don't have the leadership skills. And he said, I see in you the leadership skills desire to bring about the change that we envision for this country. So with that information, I'm not saying that the Taliban are right in saying that you don't need a master's degree or a PhD to lead institutions because I myself kind of fell in that. But at the same time, I would have never discouraged anybody uh, and even to this day to not pursue master's or, or PhD degrees because education's foundation is on the more you learn, the better you become. And that's you know the one principle that at least these two institutions need to push and promote. So I don't agree with their explanation of these degrees are not important because that's not true. Even at the Ministry of Education, one of the reason I changed the whole structure and brought in new leadership across the board were for two reasons. One, I wanted new blood to handle the corruption that was happening at various levels across the ministry, and number two, I wanted to bring particularly educated, but in the technical know-how. So if I was bringing a head of procurement, I didn't want an engineer to come and head procurement. I wanted someone with procurement experience and procurement knowledge to be able to handle that. So it's crucially important to have the appropriate knowledge, particularly at the action level. So when, when you're executing work, you need to have the technical knowledge of how to do it.
0: I want to talk about your tenure briefly. You had a reform plan, a document that you helped draft in the 14 months you were minister. You wrote the country's first national education policy. You were looking at reforms around the national curriculum, teacher training, the structure of the ministry, I guess, hopefully opening up opportunities for women within the ministry, obviously, and education itself. Over here in the West, we didn't hear so much about that, but we heard about these kind of two controversies. One was this banning of girls singing the national anthem in a mixed gender setting, and it feels incongruous. So explain to us what was happening. Why the ban? There was no ban.
1: (laughs) And this is where I actually got very angry with particularly international media, is how dare you, and and I'm talking to international media, how dare you announce and report on false information.
0: But the sorry, the report I saw actually had the ministry confirming it.
1: No, so there was this confusion. Unfortunately, the international media never contacted me directly. I was still alive and working in in Kabul and leading the ministry, but they refused to connect with the primary source to get this information. Unfortunately, a colleague of mine who was heading the Kabul directorate for the education, he was part of a conversation where I actually had raised the question to the leadership of the ministry, because what had happened is over the period that I served in the ministry, every time we would go to a education ministries event or a any other government event, I would only see a group of young teenage, you know, 10th grade and above girls handpicked to make sure that they had the looks and the body and the hair all made up, dressed up, prepared for these anthems or other songs that is culturally appropriate, you know, national patriotic songs, basically promoting education and whatnot. And so these girls would stand on the stage and sing for most of the time in all male audience. And there were all sorts of men in these audiences. And so I questioned being a mother of a girl in a society like Afghanistan, why are we only promoting and putting girls on the stage? Why isn't it a mixture of boys and girls? Why don't we ever have smaller like, you know, even psychologically, when you watch young kids sing, it's a lot more fun and they make you emotional more because they may make mistakes, but they're cute about it. But when you have, you know, teenagers, 15, 16 and 17 year olds, women, young women standing there, they're they're a lot more professional. They care about their look. And so it it becomes almost like a display. So I just questioned, I said, why are we sexist and that we only pick girls to do these performances and not have mixed or not have a boy's performance? That question, unfortunately, got translated to people lower down because they don't have the mentality, unfortunately, that I was questioning from. I'm a feminist. I'm a woman myself. I'm a mother. I am a young daughter. And honestly, I'll be quite frank and open here. I don't want and I didn't want my young teenage daughter performing in front of men in Afghanistan that I didn't trust, that I didn't know who they were. And I would never allow my daughter to go and perform at those events. And so the question internally for me was, if I'm not allowing my own daughter, why am I allowing the daughters of other poor people who may or may not even know that their daughters are singing and performing to men? And so that question, unfortunately, led the Kabul City Education Directorate to write a letter where he defined putting an age limit on the girls who were singing, restricting girls to only sing in front of women. And he signed that letter and sent it off. And when it sent off, before my knowledge even, and I was not aware that he had made that decision for the city of Kabul. I had just asked and posed a question and then he went and made a decision by himself. Then the, the backlash came back to me because how dare I, a female minister, ban girls from singing? I did not ban girls from singing. That was not my intention. And the world media never really dug deep enough to get down to the roots of it. Now, the one little tiny mistake that was made was that my spokesperson at the time, she's a young Afghan woman herself. All of a sudden, she was bombarded with questions from both local as well as international media sources. And her response was not aligned with what had actually happened. And so then her response was used as the ministry confirming.
0: You weren't trying to ban girls. You were trying to integrate girls and boys and perhaps maybe take the age level down a little bit.
1: I mean, I I was just questioning because honestly, the way I witnessed things on the ground, I saw the displaying of young girls on stage predominantly occupied, you know, in the audiences by Afghan men in various forms and shapes as a sexual harassment to the young girls myself. And as a motherly figure, I have, I had, and I have, and I will continue to give myself the right to protect all girls in Afghanistan from any kind of sexual abuse, whether it's physical or emotional or mental. And I saw the singing of the displaying of a particular age group always on stages as a threat to that particular notion. But there was no decision made. It was just a conversation that had started that unfortunately got
0: misconstrued. Should international communities go in to work with students and teachers and schools and overlook what the Taliban stands for? Or should they stand down? What advice would you give to them? I think the advice that I give the international community
1: is the advice I should give myself first, because I'm stuck with that same uh, question. It is difficult, I I realize. On the one hand, if the international community goes and sidelines the government and continues to to work directly with teachers on the ground, various students in various formats, it could be physical school educations, it could be education at homes, it could be education opportunities online. So right now, technology has presented another platform where we can reach people who are not able to go to a, a physical school. That's doable, but that way of providing service of education to girls is risky because anytime the local governance or the national leaders find out about it, they can ban it, they can attack it, they can stop it. Because if it goes against the principle or the values of what the current government sets in place, there will be a level of risk that any institution or any organization who tries to provide these services will have to take. Unless, of course, an agreement is signed with the government at large to say that girls' education will be handled by the international community partners, and that the government will not interfere. So if there is such an agreement, then that's a place where, yes, I would encourage even myself to go and help in the capacity that I can. But I think a more important and a more crucial method or methodology is to push and to not encourage, but basically make it a red line. Although, From our experience, we know that the red lines don't mean anything because there were plenty of us on the ground who said uh, no to certain elements of the peace deal. But unfortunately, the world ears uh, seem to have fallen deaf on those requests by women and girls in Afghanistan. If the Taliban government is to be recognized by the international community, it must be recognized with conditions. And one of the priority conditions should be education opportunity for girls. Any country that recognizes the Taliban government as a legitimate government, and if they stand strong to their notion and to to their position of not allowing girls to continue their schooling beyond sixth grade, I think we need to be seriously considering the political situation of that nation at large. And so I think this is a huge political dilemma for the entire world, but I think we're living in the 21st century you can no longer shut more than 50% of the population of a country and be blind and deaf to it. So yes, while I I like the idea of the international community partners going and providing a service to girls without the government endorsing it, but it's not acceptable to accept a government that shuns more than 50% of the population and still recognize them as, as
0: a government. The international community, I think, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, played an important role in helping to get more students enrolled, more girls enrolled. They played this positive role. They've also just been complicit in so many other things. When you think about the past 20 years, the occupation, the involvement of the international community, what do you feel right now? What is your what is what's the conclusion? Was just everything a mess, some good, some bad? I mean, how should we think about this? While the international community was trying to promote and,
1: and increase the number of girls and women in and, and various roles, the USAID project of Promote, for example, a close to, I believe, $80 million in, of investment to increase the number of women in leadership positions across government and non government sectors, those same people. Meaning Khalilzad, although Khalilzad was not representative of USAID, but he was representing the American government, that same entity goes and makes deals with an entity called the Taliban. And this didn't happen overnight. This was an effort of uh, multiple years in making. And I will end it also with even when the government of Afghanistan was intact and in place, and it was the legitimate government of Afghanistan, UNICEF went ahead and wrote or made an agreement with the Taliban to give them the authority to carry out education services in areas which were hard to reach. The government of Afghanistan was providing service of education in all areas of Afghanistan, whether it was hard to reach or easy to reach. The only areas where schools would stop is when there was active fighting. And when during active fighting, neither the Taliban nor the government could provide services. So it makes me more than angry to know that on the one hand, when I'm speaking to the international community, you pushed women, you pushed girls, you gave us this false hope that things were going to become different. One of the reasons I accepted the position that I was not so crazy about to become a minister, but I did it because I had to prove the whole belief that women can do it. That I, as a woman above 40 was able to run a ministry as large and as important as the Ministry of Education in Afghanistan because the, the 20 years of hurrahing and, and hurrah-ing around me and, uh, and behind me made me believe that yes, the world was ready to receive women and a president who supported us so profoundly as women. But yet that same international community turns around our back and goes and sits with the Taliban in the false hope and false information that the Taliban have changed and that, that women will have the ability to work and be become who they can become without taking their time or the due diligence to talk to women themselves or to include women themselves from day one. And so I feel betrayed, I'm angry, I am mad, and I really call on all educational institutions across the world, media outlets across the world, To really assess the kind of reporting that we do and the kind of messaging we give, because politics change everything. Politics have no front and back. Politics play with people's lives, with people's emotions, with people's ambitions. And as soon as the game is over, then politics can turn around and say, All right, enough. Thank you and goodbye. And so, as a woman, I will never forgive the international actors who played this ugly role in the lives of women, uh, giving them a false hope and a false dream for 20 years.
0: Rangina Hamidi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I was among the many people who watched the fall of Afghanistan with horror this summer. How would it come to this? How would the American government spent 20 years and so much money and so many lives to have it revert to this band of medieval thugs? For Rangina, a dual citizen, devout Muslim, and committed reformer, the questions were way harder. How to protect her daughter and remain loyal to the country she had hoped to spend the rest of her life in. How to continue pushing for girls and women's education with a government run by gunslinging men who did not believe half the population is entitled to a full education. Whether to exercise the privilege of a U.S. passport or forego that which others were dying to get. Rangina's theory of change has always been to work towards change inside her country, not place herself outside and demand that those in it listen to her. She pursued her work not by seeing the world as black and white, but by slogging through a lot of gray. She didn't want to be an education minister. She knew she would be ridiculed for her lack of a PhD, but it was an opportunity to have impact. She's a devout Muslim embracing a traditional Islamic country and a feminist reformer pushing for the rights of women and girls. Even with the return of the Taliban, Rangina opted to stay in the gray. She met with them to prove she wasn't scared, but also to hear what they planned to do. I sensed that maybe she wanted to find reasons to stay, to see if there wasn't any gray left when the rest of the world only saw black and white. Ultimately, one decision was black and white, and that was how to protect her daughter. Just as Rangina fled the country at 11 and ended in the U.S. so that she and her sisters could be educated, she has chosen to flee again to guarantee her daughter's safety and to ensure that she can be educated. But if the decision was black and white, the outcome is, of course, plenty gray. Her family is safe but her country's future is far from it. And she's still clearly grappling with just how to get home to the country she loves. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.